our last meeting was in November. And at our last meeting, we kind of started a semi-new subject. This course is called Fully Man. And what it's supposed to do is give us a, a biblical understanding of what it means to be human. And uh, so my own feeling is in the evangelical church, the gospel church, we, uh, we have emphasized uh, the deity of Christ a little bit at the expense of the humanity of Christ. And at the same time, and that, by the way, that was kind of necessary because what, our, what the culture around us was attacking was the deity of Christ. That n nobody really objects to saying Jesus was a human being. Uh, but if people are going to object, they object to the existence of deity, maybe, or they object to the argument that Christ is God, that Jesus was God made flesh. So in our defense of his deity, though, we end up sort of losing track of his humanity and exactly what that means. At the same time, we... Uh, we don't want to think too highly of humanity. The scripture teaches us about sin, about the destructive, the way that has been destructive to the human nature. And so when the society around us argues that humanity is basically good, we sort of resist that. And we end up at the same time, in a very similar way, kind of teaching us that humanity is basically defective. So, this whole series is kind of aimed at rebalancing all of that. And to notice, uh, first of all, that to be human, the problem with the society that says huma humanity is basically good is that it's a society that under estimates the value of humanity. It's not overvaluing it, it's undervaluing it. And this is kind of an irony, and it's maybe a little bit hard to see at first, but what I think is that the modern world has too low a view of what it means to be human compared to the biblical view. Uh, now, where you see this played out correctly, I think, is in our arguments about the sanctity of life, of human life. Uh, that human life is created in the image of God and therefore uniquely dignified in creation. Uh, <clears throat> so we've talked a little bit about that. Well, we've talked a lot about that, really, over the course of our six lessons so far, seven lessons so far. But then what we started last time, which if you remember it, thank you, but uh, is we started to discuss the humanity of Jesus. 
And in the humanity of Jesus, we have humanity perfectly exemplified. So, unlike us, Jesus' humanity is perfect, unbroken, if you will, not disturbed by the consequences of the fall. Perhaps with the sole exception that he subjected himself to death, having not sinned. Uh, So, he in that way received the consequence of the fall entirely. Um, But in his life as a human being, he lived in perfect righteousness. And what we're doing at this moment in the course is we're going through this text in Hebrews chapter 1. It's the opening sentence of the book of Hebrews, which is a book entirely organized around the supreme value of Jesus. And uh, so he opens with this great, like, sedula of Jesus. This identification of who we're talking about. <clears throat> and uh, so I'm going to just read it. Long ago, in many time, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact print of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So uh, we're, we're going to make these seven primary observations from this text. and I, They're listed there where it says Jesus is. He's perfect likeness. He is the Son. He's perfect image. And those two things are really what we talked about last time. Uh, And when the scripture says he's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, that's perfect image. Or we could read in Colossians, he is the image. The text is there at the top of your handout. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Uh, Here in Hebrews, we read the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. We also read that he is the Son. And uh, as we knew from earlier lessons, sonship is analogous to that word in Genesis, likeness. Created, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And the word likeness speaks to the relationship, man's relationship to God as Father. Adam is called the Son of God. Uh, Adam, by the way, is called the Son of God in the book of Matthew. Uh, But in any case, there's a relationship of likeness. And because of that relationship, or out of that relationship of likeness, 
there's a relationship of image. So because Adam is created in the likeness of God, Adam bears the image of God. So for you might say this about your own son or daughter, your own child, because they're created in your likeness. When I look at them, I can see you reflected. And in fact, in Genesis 5 or 6, I can't remember where, 4 maybe, uh, Adam's son Seth is said to be made in Adam's likeness and image. So, in any case, those two likenesses is about our relation to God, image is about our relation to one another and to creation in which we are to represent God. And what you see in Christ is those two relations in perfection. So he's perfect in likeness. He's the eternal son of God. He is absolutely a likeness of the Father. He is in every way a likeness of the Father. And in his humanity, he lives according to and in that relation so as to perfectly reflect the image of God. So he says to the apostles, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So, that was last time. That was all for review's sake. Uh, and today, we want to proceed <coughs> to these, uh, to two more of these observations. One, God is, Jesus is God's agent in the created order. Uh, we could use the word executive in place of the word agent. In other words, it is through the Son that the Father conducts his business, uh, pursues his agenda, does whatever he does in the creation. Uh, and then the second point is Jesus is the appointed heir of all things. Now, it's important in that sentence, especially, well, in both sentences, really, that we're using the name Jesus. Because what we're talking about here is the humanity of Jesus. Uh, This is the name his parents, his earthly parents, gave him. This is the name of the man. When uh, the Son of God appeared to Abraham way back when when the son of God appeared to Abraham he was not named Jesus it's the incarnate son of God that has this name so right, I'm, maybe this is a little abstract and I'm exaggerating a little. I'm, well I'm not really exaggerating but I'm emphasizing something here on purpose uh Jesus is God's agent in the created order. Jesus is the appointed heir of all things. And that's especially important in that second statement. <clears throat> so, but let's, let's go back. Jesus is God's agent in the created order. And we have this in the expression in our passage in Hebrews. Through whom also he created the world. So, 
we could read about this also in say John chapter 1 in the beginning was the word the word was God the word was with God he was in the beginning with God all things were created through him and then as if we weren't sure what he meant by that he says nothing has been created that wasn't created by him speaking of the word the son the one who came in the flesh uh, so <clears throat> through whom he made the world now what I want one thing I want to point out here is uh, the word for world is not the regular word for world in the New Testament like say for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son different word is used there that is translated with the word world in first uh, John love not the world or the things thereof that's a different word the word here and I, I, I certainly don't want to argue that world doesn't is uh, a, a, a wrong translation here. It is not. This is a perfectly legitimate translation for this Greek word. But the Greek word here is the Greek word aeon or ion, or we would say in English eon, meaning a period of time. Through whom also he made the history. So we uh, this this word, by the way, is also is in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, eternal. It is the New Testament word that is the word eternal in English. The ages. Sometimes when it means eternal, it, it says eon and eon, forever and ever. Is a way of saying this. But the here's the point. The regular Greek word for world is cosmos, which you probably recognize. There are cosmonauts. The cosmos is the grand system which certainly God did create uh, and, but the grand system the cosmos, the universe would be the way we say it nowadays and all of the rules of physics and chemistry and whatever all of the electrons spinning around protons all of the everything planets spinning around stars Cosmos, And in the regular use of the word that's translated world, say in 1 John, love not the world, it's the cosmos of human society and culture. Love not the world, meaning love not the systems of society, the ways of the world, we might say. So that word gets used in a pretty broad spectrum of meanings as well. The basic meaning of it is system. Uh, don't love the system. And by the system, in that case, we mean don't operate the way the world operates. 
the world has a system based on certain values and assumptions about everything, you don't share those values and assumptions. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that's the world system. We don't, we don't love that system. When the, Jesus says, don't be surprised when the world hates you, they also hated me. That's the system he's referring to, the human society and culture that entirely oriented around, well, self. <clears throat> so, here though, he says that the Son is the one, now the speech of God, through whom also he created the ages, not the system, though certainly God created the universe and all of its system, but the history. Now to me, it's a very important thing to notice that the universe is the setting of a history. In the modern materialistic mindset, the universe, uh, if a history happens in the universe, it's purely an accident and really it's just kind of imaginary. We don't, there isn't any actual purpose to the universe. The universe is a physical machine. The universe is, is and is only a cosmos. A system, uh, there's rules, there's physics, there, it all operates that way. And if you have a thought, really what you have is electrons running around the wiring of your brain. And if that brings out some sense of purpose in you, that's just accident. There's no actual purpose. What the Bible teaches, though, is that in its creation, the world is the setting, the universe, the cosmos, is only the setting for the eons, the history. God is telling a story. He is the author of that story. And there is uh, purpose and direction in all things that flows from what God is doing over the course of the ages. He didn't just create a system. So most of us in the modern world, if we believe in God, we're, we're kind of deistic. You know what that means? That's God as the watchmaker. This was a popular view in the period of the American Revolution. Thomas Jefferson is sort of famous for being a deist. In other words, he thinks of God as creating everything, but what God creates is a system, and then he watches it play out. See, you know, God's just a grand observer. He's not a participant. What the scripture teaches, though, is God is the author and so this, the storyline of the ages is going somewhere that God has purposed in advance. Uh, so he's the author of the story of humanity. Then if we have the incarnate son of God in the story, God is also the central character. <laughs> he's the most important person in the story. 
So you see, and this is in the second point, he's the author of the story of humanity in which he is the central human character. <clears throat> it's quite stunning, actually, that God would become uh, human. Yet that is what he did. So Colossians 1, 15 He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It goes on. Sorry, just got to turn to a card quick. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Now get this. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities... All things were created through him and for him. Now, what you have in those statements, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, those are the terms of history. Uh, it's not just that he uh, put a system in place and watched it play out. He creates the authorities within the whole cosmos, wherever they are. This, by the way, would include both earthly authorities and whatever spiritual structures there might be in the angelic communities, which I just said about all you can say about them from the just so you know. Uh, anyway, uh, so then, in the person of Jesus, he always acts on the Father's behalf. Always. You know, we notice the point we're making is Jesus is the agent in created order. <clears throat> he always acts. He says this throughout the book of John. <clears throat> the main point of the book of John is Jesus, the man, is the Son of God, sent by God, to glorify God in the world. I'm going to say that again. This is the point of the book of John. Jesus, the man, is the Son of God, sent by God to glorify God in the world. That's why you see in the book of John, Jesus comes in this prayer in chapter 13, I think it is. He says, uh, now's the time for the Son to be glorified. In chapter 17, he's praying the final prayer. He says, Father, glorify the Son. And he's talking about the cross. So the work of Jesus on the cross, his death and resurrection in the book of John, is the glorification of God in a man. Well, anyway, so... I'm just pointing out we're seeing a likeness and image thing going on there. But he, he says throughout the book of John in chapter 3, he says, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. <clears throat> He's acting on behalf of the Father. In chapter 5 of the book of John, verse 19, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, that expression, truly, truly, amen, amen, it's like saying, hey, here's something you can count on. 
The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Son does, that the Son does likewise. Uh, And uh, just so you can see the repetition of this through the book of John, and it's, I'm just citing two of many cases. In chapter 8, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. He says this repeatedly. I only say what He says. I only do what He does. He is acting as... Uh, the Father's agent. In Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love toward us. That's an important word, demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's acting as the agent of God, the Father. Now, I would just point out to you, this is the fullness of his humanity. It's Jesus the man who's acting as the perfect man. And what does the perfect man do? He acts as God's agent in the created order. This is what God intends in Genesis chapter 1. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And he says to the man, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and rule it. What, what is this about? It's about the co-regency of humanity in the creation. We are acting as the king's representatives. Uh, So this is to spread the glory of God around the planet. And humanity in this way is to be the glorification of God. In Jesus, we see this where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. He's the incarnation of the eternal Son. And this is, I believe, in God's mind in that declaration in Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Where do we see that in the ages? Well, so far, only in Christ, the perfect man. So, honestly, I think also, and we've talked about this in this group before, if you read the Genesis 1 leading up to that, you would also notice that if that's what he means in Genesis 1.26, that's what he intends in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The creation of the heavens and the earth, which is then described in Genesis 1, up to the culmination in Genesis 127, 26, 27, so on from there. All of that creation, and this is in the very literary structure of the book itself, all of that. He did this, it's good. 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 He creates man. It's very good, and he rests. 
the whole point of Genesis 1 is the universe is the household of the image bearer of God. I, I shouldn't say household. I really mean house. Uh, it's the setting for humanity. Even the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now think about how this relates to a worldly cosmology. What are the sun and the moon and the stars? Well, they're just the random effects of the Big Bang. They have no meaning or purpose. <clears throat> Genesis is explicit. They are created after the earth is created, even after God separates light from darkness and creates a day. After that, he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, and they have a purpose to give light on the earth, the house of man. Now, in, if we look at the geometry of the universe, uh, the geometry of the universe that's centered on the earth would be very complicated and hard to develop. We don't, it's the simplest physics model of the universe does not make the earth the center. But, in the ages, in the eons, in the plan of God, according to scripture, the earth is the house of the center, which is humanity. And humanity is not some random effect that happened by time and chance. It's the very intentional creation of God with the purpose of sharing his nature so that his glory is more evident. Well, okay. So you can see that these two stories, these two meta-narratives of the world and the universe are not uh, reconcilable. You can't have both. They are diametrically opposed in various ways. But what the scripture teaches is Jesus is God's agent in the created order, and in doing so, he is perfect humanity. By the agency of Christ, God restores the agency of all humanity through the atonement. Uh, that passage in First or Second Corinthians is is uh, is a little bit long, but it's the passage where uh, Paul talks about us being reconciled to God in Christ, where uh, he doesn't think of anyone the same way he used to think of them, according to the flesh. His uh, participation in Christ's reconciliation has completely inverted his worldview so that now when he sees a human being he sees something entirely different from what he used to see uh, he says we're ambassadors for Christ in other words Paul's agency for the sake of the glory of God is made by the work of the cross Paul has the because of the cross we are reconciled in our likeness to God and therefore capable of 
being his witness. Jesus, this is what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. Okay, stay there in Jerusalem, wait. And when the Spirit comes, that's very important. You know, in the book of John, it describes Jesus like this. God gave him the Spirit without measure. Like, uh, like the communion between the Father and the Son is in the Holy Spirit. And now that is available to his followers. When the Spirit comes, he says, you'll be my, what? You know this verse. You shall be my witnesses. That's, who, that's what Jesus is. And in his reconciling work of the cross, we are restored to this full humanity which will be really completely realized in our resurrection from the dead. Now, partly realized. We're reconciled. We have active fellowship with God. I can pray anytime, anywhere, about anything, and I know He's... I, I'm, I'm in real relationship. He's paying attention. He's caring for me as his child, his son, his adopted, reconciled son. And in that relationship, well, I can share that relationship. And so I can bear his image in the world. I can be his witness. Matthew 28, another great commission statement. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. It's because of his authority in resurrection. Uh, we could, uh, well, we could look at these other texts too, but they, they're all aiming at the same place. I recommend that you go and read them. They're kind of long. By the agency of Christ, God restores the agency of humanity through the atonement. Um, Jesus, then, the second point, is he's the appointed heir of all things. Uh, and I, I'm, we're short of time, so I'm not going to just go look up all these texts. Jesus, the Son of God, is appointed the heir in eternity past. He's been appointed to receive this inheritance from before the beginning. Again, you see... The history of the world is a story God is writing. He has it in mind before he begins. And he plays it out according to what he planned. Uh, the Son of God is appointed heir in eternity past. Jesus the man inherits all, inherits all things. And in Hebrews 1, where it says, you know, what we read earlier, <clears throat> he has been appointed the heir of all things. <clears throat> what we want to notice is, wait a second, he's the son of God, and that's an eternal thing. It had no beginning, and it has no end. 
He's the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Um, don't all things belong to him from the get-go? He's, we just read he's the creator of everything. It all belongs to him. It was created for him, through him, and for him. So what's the point of this talk of him inheriting things? The point is, he inherits them as a man. Let's see this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Have this mind in yourselves, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, okay, so he's the eternal one, did not count equality with God a thing to be clung to, desperately grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he became one of us. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, the Son of God is eternal God. There's nowhere to exalt Him to. The emphasis here is on the humanity of the Son of God in the person of Jesus. Who the Lord of Lords is a human being, the Lord Jesus, who has been exalted so that his name is above every other human being, and every other human being, no matter who they are, or when they lived, or where they are going to end up, will recognize him as Lord. And this is the glory of the Father. So it is in his humanity. He is living out Genesis 1.27. The man. It, it, ha, it can't be someone who's not a human being that fulfills the promise and purpose of God in Genesis 1.27. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. It has to be a human. that does, Only humans do that. And that is perfectly realized in the inheritance of Jesus. Jesus the man inherits all things. And you can read that actually in Revelation 11.15 where it just kind of says, now that happened. <clears throat> in Christ, redeemed humanity is the inheritance and shares the inheritance. We're told that we receive an inheritance. Let's look quickly at Ephesians chapter 1. By the way, everyone should just read Ephesians chapter 1 at least once a week. If you want to maintain your Christian encouragement, this is the right place to go right here. 
<clears throat> Ephesians 1:11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Aha. Uh-huh having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's writing story. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Image bearers. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Some people think God saves human beings because they deserve to be saved. Or he saves human beings for the sake of their salvation. When in fact, he saves human beings for the sake of his glory. Your salvation is about the glory of God, not the saving of your neck. But in any case, that's off the point, really. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I never cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? (laughs) In this text, we we see two things about this inheritance. One is that we are going to share in it. We are going to inherit the glory of God. (laughs) And two that it's his inheritance. And that his inheritance is literally in us, the saints. What's the principal thing of the inheritance of Christ? Well, what do we, what do we learn in Hebrews? He's, he will inherit all things. What we saw in Colossians, all things were made by him and for him. This is Alpha Omega. This is beginning, end. This is creation, conclusion. And what's the main thing about all of that? Well, if we read Genesis 1 properly, we already know. Redeemed humanity (laughs) is the main thing about that. We're getting a a meta-narrative here. the big story that explains all the little stories. The big story in which all the little stories have their context. That from the beginning, God made man to model himself, to bring glory to himself, to be the reflection of his glory and the respondents of his glory. We're the ones who observe his glory and say it and credit him for it. And we're the ones who bring it into the world. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, we seriously obscured the image of God in man. In Christ, we see it perfectly reflected and restored to the rest of us. 
So he's God's agent, and he's God's heir. You see this is beginning and end, right? You, this is the conclusion, or it was the conclusion, sorry, and the creation. We hear this in, reflected in the book of Hebrews when Jesus is called the author and finisher of our faith. <clears throat> he makes it, he, go, he blazes the trail ahead of us, and he leads us to the conclusion in the end. Now, I have a question after all this, because I reflect on this and I think, that is pretty abstract. Is it not? This is very philosophical and theoretical. And when I say theoretical, I don't mean it's not true. I just mean it's kind of high concept. And so my question is, so how does, does this make any difference? If it's true, it's true. It is done and done in a certain respect, even though it's still playing out. God is doing it. So why do you need to know it? So you can share it with others. Mm-hmm. And share it with others correctly. Yeah, okay. And I see in, in a fuller understanding of this, a little bit more than a simple assertion in sharing the gospel. In other words, look, we're talking about the big story here. And it's not just, you know, you're a sinner, you need to be saved, Jesus died for your sins because God loves you, so if you believe in him, you'll be saved and you'll go to heaven when you die. You see how <coughs> focused on the individual that way of telling the story and all that's true right very practical yeah and but at the same time uh, people may need a grander accounting that says uh, well this is you know what's going on in the Christian story is not just hey this is what we believe and you have to believe it too this is an explanation of all things and in this case, it is, in one sense, opposed to the other explanations of all things. So this gives you a coat to try on. You know what I mean by that? You can, you can sort of say, look, take the whole story, see how it fits. And take that whole story and see how it fits. Which of these is a better fit? In my mind, there are so many things that are just simply ignored by the modern materialistic mindset. You know, the, just the spiritual nature of all humanity. Every last human being's sense of purpose, which according to the modern materialist mindset is just a grand delusion. Why do they say it's a delusion? Because they believe in materialism, and if that's true, there can't be any actual purpose. <laughs> well, okay. So you're just leaving a whole, perhaps the main 
uh, feature of human experience, you're just sort of ruling it out from the beginning because of your presuppositional beliefs. Okay, well that doesn't fit. Okay, I'm sort of elaborating, but this is one way it can be helpful to have an understanding of these things. Like, who are you? As a human being, what gives you meaning and purpose in life? In the modern mindset, you just have to make it up because it's not real. This is why all the existentialists end up killing themselves. Because all the best they can do is, well, just think up a purpose. Right? Whatever feels good to you. And they call this being authentic. Uh, you know. <coughs> Other ideas. How, why, why would it matter, any of this stuff? That Jesus is perfect humanity, and God's agent, God's conclusion. I think it gives us a deeper understanding of Jesus and the totality. So it's like <clears throat> with our small minds, we cannot wrap our mind around everything. So it's like nearing it hmm. so we can dig deeper. How is that good? Well, I just want to press a little on why do you need to? Or how does it benefit us? Like, for instance, our state is disconnected from God mm. because we're focusing on self. Mm. So with this deeper understanding, then it's like, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Because then it's not just, ah, yeah, um, this baby was born and he came to save a blah, blah, blah. No. Oh, whoa! It's yeah, actually, bigger. it's going somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I kind of hear you saying something like, uh, you know, Martin Luther. Well, and he was imitating Augustine, and he talked about the human soul being curved in on itself, so that we are to are really kind of totally self-oriented, and the gospel sort of pries that open. And so this understanding draws me out of myself into relation to God and to others and to the world around me. It, it opens me up if I, if I develop this deeper understanding of what exactly is going on here. And this is, by the way, an account of the Bible's account of what exactly is going on here in the grand scheme. Mm -hmm. And then maybe it will even give us some insight as to not only who we are, but what's our purpose here? What are we, what's going on? What, mm. Why are we breathing? <laughs> yeah. Because it gives us a certain context then. Versus, right. let's say, that other story. So, okay, right. so if I'm looking at it, if I'm looking at me from this context, oh, oh. Yeah, so what are we doing here is back in Genesis. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. 
to spread the Lordship of Christ around. And you're doing everything and everyone a giant goodness. Now, exactly what that looks like in the fallen world is tricky, but that's what we're doing. We're becoming something. We're not just doing things. And we're becoming something in community with the other people who have been reconciled with God. We're not just holding services and providing religious whatever in the world. We're not just uh, we're not just doing things. We're being something. To me, this uh, I'm going to answer this question. How does this change anything? Three words: rest, reflection, recreation. Rest. Oh, so God has this thing in hand in the person of Jesus. If if not for the human man Jesus who did the things he did and does the things he does, if not for that, I could not rest in any notion that God has things in hand. Because of Christ, I see it. He's telling the story. He's taking care of things. I rest in the work of Christ. Well, this is just the basic Christian move, isn't it? Like all the time, every day, this is all we ever really do that's really Christian is Jesus has done what needs doing. And I benefit. I just receive it. I rest it. And then I reflect it. <laughs> so when I say reflection, I'm not talking about meditation. I'm not talking about climbing back inside my head. I'm talking about reflecting the reality of God's love in the world, of bearing the image of, of look, if, if Jesus has restored my agency in his work, for heaven's sake, I'm going to act as his agent. You gotta walk the walk. Yeah, just be who he made me to be. This isn't a list of rules. It's an opportunity of relation. Now, that opportunity has rules. Thank God we can read the commandments of Christ and get direction about exactly how to do this reflecting thing. But I'm not, I'm not living according to those rules for the, for the credit of obeying rules. I'm doing it because it's God's best advice about how to best reflect his love in the, into the world. So I rest, I reflect. And the third thing is recreation. Now that might seem like a funny word to you, but here's what I'm trying to tell you. You're a Christian for heaven's sake. Enjoy your life. Especially enjoy the new life you possess in Christ. If we are the people going around frowning and angry and pounding our fists, we are not reflecting. Uh, there's a 
a part of me that wants to say, hey, just quit already with all this Christian stuff. Just enjoy what God is. Be it. Here's what we want. We want the scripture to just sort of give us a big old long page of busy things to do. Just tell me exactly what to do. Uh, religiously follow all those things. I'll have my quiet time every day at 4.30 in the morning. I'll have it again at midnight when I go to bed because I can't go to bed until midnight because I've got to work while the day is on. Uh, by the way, that's Jesus said that. We're going to talk about that text tomorrow in the church. But uh, uh, when I think <laughs> the ordinary day-to-day -day human life is supposed to be this, when I enjoy my work or I enjoy the fruit of my work, Scripture says God's given us everything to enjoy. And so I want to say recreation. This is what I hope I'm doing when I dive. I'm looking around going, oh my gosh, what on earth did he make that for? And the answer to my question is my question. You understand what I mean? When I say, wow, what on earth did he make that for? He made that to cause me to say, wow, what on earth did he make that for? There's plants and flowers and bugs and fish and <sighs> that are in the world no human being has yet laid eyes on. I just enjoy that. <laughs> I just think, wow. You know, if you go over to Mars, there's none of that stuff. <laughs> anyway, uh, the uh, my for me, this realization of the Son of God joining us in our humanity is my path for rest, reflection, recreation. I can take it easy and work hard while resting. I can, I can lit, work myself to the bone restfully in Christ. And the whole thing is, can I start living up to his way as a man? The answer to that question is, yeah, I can start. And one day, I'll really get in on it. That's all I got. That was pretty long. It's very late. Anyone have any questions or <laughs> other things you want to talk about? You uh, mentioned uh, Jefferson. Yeah. <clears throat> Did his, what do you call it? He was the uh, yeah. Yes. A deist, yeah. Yes. And it, it, you know, it brought to mind uh, what he did. And he, 
went into the Bible and tore out the parts that he didn't like from the way so that his thoughts would match what was in the Bible. <laughs> That's pretty arrogant, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, it, it's called, there's a book you can buy a copy of it now. It's called the Jefferson Bible. And this, it's really just the Gospels. Yeah. Not the whole Bible. But he basically, he didn't like the idea of anything supernatural going on. So he, he did what now we would call demythologizing the text. And uh, so you can imagine, it's a lot shorter. And Easier to read. He, you know, he thought Jesus was a worthy moral teacher and example. You know, for as smart a guy as he was, it's hard to see how you can do that. Because if Jesus isn't who he says he is, he's the last guy you want to follow as a moral example. If he's not the Son of God and the Savior, if his death isn't an atoning sacrifice, he's either crazy or evil. Yeah, you know, you can't you can't really put him in that place of good guy if he's not the savior. Cuz he went around claiming to be the son of God. Oh, well, is he nuts? If he's not if he's not telling the truth, then I say, yeah, he's nuts. And nobody should follow him. But then the next question comes up, you thought about Jefferson being so smart. But smart is not where it is in belief. That's correct. The Bible says that a lot, by the way, explicitly. <laughs> if you are if you're smart and a believer, you're one lucky guy. Because usually being smart carries you the other way. Keeps you lost. Universities are full of really smart guys who are the biggest fools that ever lived. You can say the same thing if you're rich, by the way. And probably most of us here would qualify on any reasonable standard. <laughs> we put ourselves in a percentage in the whole wide world. We're all very well. Which is true about you, even if you are stressed out over money. <laughs> Which, by the way, being rich does not alleviate, in case you wondered. It increases. The, the, the more rich guys in the room could tell us all about that. <laughs> Having a lot of it doesn't reduce your stress over it. What was the quote about the eye of the needle? Yeah. Easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. What in, in reality? That was in response to the encounter with the rich young ruler, by the way, who could not give up his possessions in order to have Christ. They explained what, what was the eye of the needle. 
Well, some theorize it's a gate in the city that you could get a camel through if you worked hard enough. We don't. That's a that's a speculation. I don't. You know, uh, it could be Jesus was referring to that, or he, it could be he's just using a hyperbolic image. You know, like. And by the way, the naming of that gate is the same hyperbolic image, right? Like you can't get a camel through that. So either way, it works. Let me pray. Father, thanks for getting us together today, and uh, Lord, we are so thankful that you have a purpose for us in this life. Lord, we pray that we would take our place in it, that we would uh, understand who we are, we would reflect that understanding to people around us, help them to see who they are because of who you are. Lord, we, I just thank you for these men, for their friendship, for this good time together, this great meal, all these things. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.